This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Red Box Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Shawley. Today I'm joined by historian and biographer Sir Anthony Selden, author of works on Churchill, Major, Blair and Cameron and, more unusually, biographies of key political buildings including Number 10, the Foreign Office and the British Ambassador's Residence in Washington. More recently, he's published a history of the Cabinet Office, examining the relationship between officials and their elected masters over the past century. So here we are then, six months after Theresa May entered number 10, we're learning more about her style of leadership and the fractious relationship with officials like Sir Ivan Rogers, the EU diplomat who dramatically resigned over Christmas, and Simon Stevens, the NHS chief embroiled in a public row over funding for the struggling health service. So Anthony, I'd like to begin with a question we posed in our last podcast, does Theresa May know what she's doing? Yes, I think she does know what she's doing, but let's be honest uh, about it. She didn't expect to become Prime Minister when she did, and uh, then all the talk was her taking over in October uh, of last year, and she suddenly found herself taking over before... So uh, she had no time to prepare and work up her staff and work up her policies. I think that, you know, really, really is significant. Uh, It wasn't as if she was taking over after a general election and uh, with time to work up her manifesto. And I think the other point is that, obviously, uh, this is such a massively uh, important, unknowable um, event that we're dealing with Brexit in which uh, informed opinion is so deeply divided, as we saw during the referendum. So I think it's a little bit cheap, isn't it, to say that she doesn't know her own mind. And I think it's quite refreshing, actually, having a prime minister who is uh, not obviously ideological and who is prepared just to not be hurried. How different will she have found it on a sort of day-to-day operational uh, basis moving from the Home Office to number 10? Nothing but nothing in British politics prepares you for being Prime Minister. You can have been Foreign Secretary and Chancellor and Home Secretary, as, for example, Jim Callaghan was, uh, who became Prime Minister 40 years ago. But nothing prepares you for the absolute frantic rush of uh, policy from all areas and the acute difficulty to keep on top 
uh, and to uh, keep consistency. It takes most prime ministers three or four years to learn how to do the job. It did Thatcher. It wasn't Thatcher's second term post Falklands War in 82, post general election victory in 83 that she really got into properly into her stride. It took Blair until the second term till he found his way around uh, ditto with major uh, I think a tragedy for the country and for Cameron was he was really beginning to find out how to do the job when he was ejected. So, you know, I mean, she's been there six months. She'd been there six months. She wasn't expecting to be there. And she's facing the biggest crisis, uh, biggest policy decision since the Second World War. And surprise, surprise, uh, everyone says she is startled like a rabbit uh, in the headlights. Well, what, you know, she isn't. But what else would you expect? Is the best preparation for going to number 10 being a leader of the opposition? Because at least you sort of, you're sort of having a dress rehearsal in terms of constructing your team and all it's, of that sort it, of thing. It's acutely difficult because you're having to cover every single piece of the waterfront. Mm. Uh, there is nothing uh, that, uh, whether it's, it, it's roads or whether it's national insurance or, or, or education or, um, or Cyprus uh, that you don't have to have a view on. Therefore, being uh, um, shadow uh, opposition leader helps, but um, you're not getting the intelligence briefings, and intelligence takes a very major part of the Prime Minister's time, particularly uh, at the moment that we are facing this existential threat from militant Islam. And on top of that, it's it's the fact that she is also the you are also the country's uh, leading. You're the national leader uh, in this country, so any crisis or emergency, the spotlight's on the prime minister, and you have uh, she's the leader abroad, and she, so she, there's the, the, one of the things they find acutely difficult is the 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 the, the, the constant treadmill of seeing uh, foreign ambassadors, foreign leaders coming through, and that and it's very hard to to get control, to control your diary, to think through what you're trying to do when you have all this happening and when the media are constantly prying in to see what you are up to. So uh, you have to be psychologically very well adjusted and and it takes three to four years. (laughs) And at the moment she's sort of been trying to learn on the job and and get to grips with all that while the country is facing the biggest policy challenge it's probably ever faced, a sort of single... Ever. Um, I think that it's acutely difficult because because get it wrong and the economy could be very severely damaged. Uh, It's acutely difficult because she has such a divided nation with such polarised opinion. It's not just popular opinion, it's it's expert opinion, so deeply divided about what is the right course of action and where she has um, her own party, which has been predominantly Eurosceptic for 40 years, militantly Eurosceptic, nasty, I mean aggressively, don't use nasty, aggressively uh, Eurosceptic, um, and which has uh, unseated uh, Major and, uh, and everybody uh, since, and with a predominantly uh, Eurosceptic press. So, so it is uh, very difficult. Um, and I think she's playing it right. She's not being bounced into decisions. She's given now her second philosophical speech. Uh, some people won't like that because it's too social market, too social democrat for some, envisaging the role of the bigger role for the state, so that's very un-Thatcherite. Uh, it's even uh, slightly left uh, of Cameron, who himself was to the left of both um, Major and uh, Thatcher. But she's come out with these statements. She's dealing incrementally with 
policy and if I was giving her advice I would tell her absolutely to ignore the people who are saying she doesn't know what she's doing. Have you been surprised by the amount of attention on Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy, the Prime Minister's joint chiefs of staff? Because certainly when David Cameron entered number 10, I'm not sure Ed Llewellyn, um, I'm not sure his press coverage was quite so um, fulsome. And sort of every decision, or particularly anything, anything controversial which comes out of number 10 or anything about the relationships with other civil servants especially, all end up being seen actually not through the prism of their relationship with Theresa May, but their relationship with Nick and Fiona. Well, the reality is that most Prime Ministers since uh, Thatcher have had a man and a woman uh, in charge of, as dominant forces in number 10. So with Thatcher, it was Bernard Ingham, uh, who was covering the press, and Charles Pohl, who covered the whole, though he was just Foreign Affairs Private Secretary, he was far more powerful than the Principal Private Secretary, covering the whole waterfront of policy with Major. It was uh, uh, Sarah Hogg and Jonathan Hill, and actually they had quite a lot of exposure uh, during their time. With Thatcher, it was Angie Hunter and uh, Alistair, and then it was Sally Morgan and... Um, uh, and Jonathan Powell uh, took over that role. So it's, it's, it's fairly well, and with Cameron, less high profile, but uh, you had Ed Llewellyn and Kate Fall, and, um, but a broader-based team, I think it partly reflects the fact that, um, that, that, that they, you know, they were the people who were by her side in the yes. Home Office, and she didn't have, it wasn't just she didn't have time to think through uh, what she was going to do uh, across the piece, as the Prime Minister needs to do, but uh, she didn't have time to build up a team. Uh, and so you fall back on the two people you've known and trusted and worked very closely with, and they've been—they were a formidable, formidable team. I mean, you know, she wouldn't have lasted as long. Uh, uh, I mean, that was extraordinary the last six years at the Home Office, the graveyard of British politicians. Um, if uh, she didn't have uh, really strong people by her side, so I think that inevitably she has relied on those. But I think what's now happened is she's getting a much broader team, uh, much broader policy team, much broader comms team, much broader political team. And um, the civil servants have expanded into that space and, and provided the ballast and continuity. And, and she's got in Jeremy Hayward, uh, the most formidably experienced uh, official, I mean, the dominant official of the last 20 years in British government. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's surprising that people have concentrated on Nick and Fee. And I think in the early months, that was the reality because they were... Uh, because she was having to rely on them, but, and, but but now she's built up a team, and therefore they can come back more into the more traditional roles. That you know has gone all the way back to to, to Thatcher. You know, British prime ministers in Number Ten have two dominant officials on whom they rely. It's a clearly established pattern, as I've shown. Do you think that she needs to broaden uh, her in, yeah. her the people that she listens to, the the advice that she takes, and to maybe move beyond? the sort of bunker mentality that we sometimes saw from the, when they were at the home office. That, you know, that was one of the reasons why she survived. You can't run number um, 10 thinking everybody's out to get you. We have very short memories, and, and it doesn't get any credence to say it, but nevertheless it's true that every prime minister is accused of having a bunker mentality. So Thatcher was, <laughs> Thatcher was accused of a bunker mentality with Ingham and Charles Pohl. Um, Blair, who's, uh, a major, was, was absolutely... 
Uh, and indeed, they talked about it. They, they talked at one stage in one of their diaries, which I quoted in my book on Major, they felt uh, as, as if they were in that scene in Zulu where they were surrounded, Rourke's Drift, and they just had this circling enemies all around them and one by one, you know, bunker mentality was what the major steam felt that obviously with the den under uh, Blair, uh, Brown was hugely criticised for having his close clique of uh, Stuart Wood and and Sunai, uh, David Muir in there um, and, and, you know, again, Cameron's chumocracy. So, it's always the case. I mean, mean, but I think that... I, um, I think it, it. I don't think it, it has now expanded out. So I think it was inevitably true for the first three or four months. I think now um, they brought in as they needed to do um, uh, really, really strong people to to fill it, to fill in the spaces. Um, but you know, I mean, prime ministers need to listen and not listen. Uh, prime ministers listen too much, um, end up uh, going nowhere, um, and you don't listen at all. The general tendency is uh, all of them, you know, they come in, Blair at the beginning said, you know, call me Tony and, you know, I'm your mate. And Cameron said, call me Dave. And, you know, Thatcher said, call me Margaret joke. Um, <laughs> and, but, you know, the, the, the tendency and, and, and uh, Major's first cabinet in November 1990 was, was, you know, incredibly relaxed. They all start off relaxed, wanting to be friends with everybody and they all end up you know, like their Rourke's Drift in, in Zulu, um, and, and all of them without fail. And so I think that, you know, there's that pivotal point whereby you are listening, uh, but not listening too much, because, you know, uh, leadership, politics, leadership is about taking decisions, and that means you're going to make enemies, and it means you take the right decision at the right time, and I think she's to be praised. Most people think she's to be condemned for keeping her cards close to her chest and not being bounced into decisions. Any, you know, look at the history of premiership in the last 25 years. Many people have gone, prime ministers have gone wrong by feeling the need to, to make a quick decision. You know, again and again, you have policy on the hoof because the media is baying for a resignation or they're baying for a, a quick response and, and invariably it's wrong. You know, it suits the media uh, uh, for 24 hours, but it doesn't suit the country. In your book, you talk about how the Cabinet Office in general, and the cabinet secretary in particular, where they play a really central role in the government, they tend to be the more successful ones, and it's prime ministers who... Uh, Matt, it is absolutely crystal clear that if you look at the history of the last 100 years, the prime ministers who have been most successful, and I will just uh, spell them out, it would be uh, Lloyd George for his two years of the war, 1916 to 18, Churchill uh, during the war, Clement Attlee during the Second World War, Churchill. Clement Attlee from 1945 in particular to 49. He lost it in his last couple of years. Um, and you then look at uh, Thatcher until 87, 88 when she lost it. Uh, you look at the, the first two or three Cameron years, which were extremely successful against the odds. Uh, these are people who work with their cabinet secretaries and with the wider civil servants. The times it's gone disastrously wrong are where they haven't. And you can look there at Ramsay MacDonald, Labour's first Prime Minister. You can look at um, uh, transparently at uh, the Harold Wilson government, particularly from 1966 onwards, when he came back with a majority of 100. Could have had had the uh, world before him, had the intellectual popular climate in his favour. 
uh, but they none of them, or, or too few of them, knew how to operate that with their civil servants. Richard Crossman, who wrote his diaries uh, with the supposition that it was civil service all for, actually he was just a crap minister, <laughs> uh, and and Wilson was a crap prime minister. He did not. He brought in a, a, a shockingly poor. Uh, senior civil servant into number 10 because he didn't want to have a robust uh, uh, cutting-edge treasury civil servant, which is what the principal private secretary normally is. Uh, you fast forward to Thatcher who lost the plot in her last couple of years. Robin Butler who had been a feisty uh, principal private secretary to her in, from 1983 to uh, 85 been with her during the Brighton bomb attack in 1984 by her side. Uh, I quote in the letter, a very emotional letter in the book, a very emotional letter that Robin Butler wrote to her in 1985 when he stood down as her principal private secretary, came back. She then chose him in 1987 over the outgoing cabinet secretary, Robert Armstrong's advice, who favoured an older person, Clive Whitmore, to take over as cabinet secretary. She said, no, I want Robin Butler. He was fantastic as my principal private secretary. And Robin Butler just couldn't believe how she had changed and how she was no longer working within the norms of uh, of cabinet government and the civil service. Uh, and uh, uh, Blair totally came in with a profound, uh, profound uh, suspicion of the civil servants, a lot of it coming from Jonathan Powell, a lot of it coming from Alistair Campbell, and they trashed the civil servants. So Robin Butler, one of the most long-serving, respected, uh, working for people of both political parties or, and all political ideas, was trashed. They called him old Buttleshanks. Then they had someone called Richard Wilson, who was a very distinguished civil servant, who they disregarded. Then they brought in somebody else. They, they were choosing these people. They can't say that these were bad. You know, these they were imposed on. They chose these people. Uh, they then chose um, Andrew Turnbull, who again they completely sidelined. Andrew Turnbull was barely anything to do at, at all with the um, uh, Iraq fiasco. Uh, they relied instead on people who they um, uh, liked and uh, and who they trusted. Terribly dangerous. Terribly dangerous. So and, and uh, the, the, the lesson is very clear that. Uh, that one of the great bullocks of uh, democracy in this country is an Im impartial civil service. Now, civil servants sometimes get it wrong, ministers sometimes get it wrong. Uh, ministers get it wrong when they trash civil servants and ignore their advice because they're not telling them what they want to hear. And uh, civil servants get it wrong when they think that they're the masters. They're not. They are, they are civil servants. They are the servants of the country. And they are there as the people who are the expert on their particular policy area. They spent their life or best part of their life studying those areas and problems. And they are there simply to deliver. They propose options. They listen they, to what the minister says. And then whatever the minister says, they get on with it. And so uh, it can go on on both sides. But when it goes well, we've had the best government. When it hasn't gone well, we've had the worst. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about 
work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. We've seen in the just past couple of weeks, it was Ivan Rogers who, in his extraordinary resignation email, basically made clear that he felt his advice wasn't being listened to. And then we've had Simon Stevens, head of the NHS, is talking about, you know, he, he basically making clear he thinks that the NHS needs more money and feels that that isn't being listened to. How, how dangerous is it for a Prime Minister when senior people like that go public with the idea that their, vo- their voices have been listened to? Well, Ivan Rogers of course, didn't go public. I don't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even know how it was leaked. I think that was a clear case of uh, needing to have somebody in that job who was sympathetic with uh, what was happening with Brexit, regardless of what one might think about Brexit. And uh, Ivan Rogers, the, the world is very much as we conceive it, construe it to be. And if we say something is going to be a terrible problem, it becomes a terrible problem. <laughs> if, if we say, uh, yeah, this is supremely difficult, but actually we can get around this. Uh, now that's what, that is the skill of the civil servant. Uh, and uh, if that was what Ivan Rogers was saying, then Ivan Rogers needed to go and there needed to be somebody else leading that, albeit somebody who didn't know the personalities and the issues as well, who would come in and actually deliver. Because the job of a civil servant is to be the servant of democracy, uh, of the elected element in our constitution, and they have to do that. And uh, that is completely clear. And it's completely clear that, that where the civil servants do that, even if they don't, agree with what the minister is saying. They put up their arguments, they say the X, Y, Z, but at the end of the day, it, it, they simply have to get on with it. And if they are not prepared to do that, they have to resign or they have to be fired. Uh, because that is sim- you know, any more than, 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 it, than in the military, you can't have forces uh, in the military saying, well, you know, it's all right, I'm not, not going to go over the top, pat and stop. You know, I mean, this hey guy, who is he? You know, he's crazy. I don't like, I don't like his, his, you know, his Smexit, uh, uh, some exit strategy, you know, and I'm not going to go, you know, you have to, you can, uh, the officers raise their objections to the plan, but at the end of the day, you know, it was the political masters here in London who were directing uh, the affairs and they are uh, in the same position. So these are civil servants, not military servants who are who are the servicemen and women in this country so uh, i think it's probably quite healthy uh, that this has come out into the open and uh, and it provides a chance to reboot it uh, to reboot uh, the way that we are approaching it so there can be people there who, who whatever they might think personally are prepared to make it happen there is no doubt uh, that we can talk ourselves into thinking that brexit is going to be impossible by the way i uh, voted Remain, but uh, we can absolutely have a Brexit strategy that is going to work for this country that needs to be delivered by people who, who, uh, who, who believe it's possible even if they have reservations about the policy because then it will be delivered. Simon Stevens is a different case and uh, Simon Stevens is a he was there in the Tony Blair policy unit uh, he understands the NHS better than uh, anybody else and um, in the country, uh, he, he uh, is profoundly, profoundly knowledgeable about 
uh, the way that it works best. Um, and there is a different relationship between Public Health England and so, so uh, and a diplomat in the far in the FCO. So. Uh, slightly different principles apply there and um, because of the way that as you know NHS England was constituted and so he has more freedom to express what what he thinks is is right for the country. With that case specifically there is a risk that if it becomes a spat between the NHS and the politicians the public are more likely to because you know there's this public outpouring always for the NHS to side with the the Mm. NHS rather than the politicians It's, it's got a getting involved in a public row with the head of the NHS is quite a high risk strategy. Uh, as we've known for many, many years, you cannot be seen to be uh, going against the NHS, which, by the way, is highly inefficient mm. uh, and which is, is ripe for uh, reorganisation and, and, and for all the, you know, you know, we all genuflect, don't we? And we say that it does wonderful work and it's absolutely true. And I know that from personal experience. But uh, there's also the NHS is very conscious of its power over politicians uh, because of the leverage that it has with the public uh, and um, uh, the, the, the sympathy vote. And, and I think there's something a little dishonest about the way that the NHS has operated. Uh, it does need to be uh, more efficient, um, more responsive. I think it needs to be more patient, uh, orientated. You know, we all need to be, you know, focused on the customer the the uh, bill that joe johnson's trying to get through that the lords are protesting about is very much consumer uh, orientated for the student it's trying to put the student first and the nhs we should all be trying to put the patient first we shouldn't be it's not about the doctors the nurses the administrators it's, it's always about the patient and what's in the best interest of the patient and uh, absolutely not certain that that the vociferous leaders of the nhs put that first so when Theresa May is sitting in uh, number 10 at the moment, do you think she... Is, is the task that she faces sort of too big? Is it the 24-hour nature of leading a, polit- a political party with a small uh, majority, running a government facing crisis at home, you've got Brexit, you've got... We haven't even touched on Donald Trump. Is it just a job which is impossible to do brilliantly well? Yes, I, I think that that's very perceptive. If it, you know, I think that's a very fair comment. We don't see it in those terms because we always think that every new incumbent, not least because they promise us the earth, <laughs> is going to be able to, 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 to deliver all of this. But if we do look back at prime ministers, uh, well, you know, some people now say to Theresa May isn't, you know, uh, doesn't know her own mind, and uh, then there was... That David Cameron, well, he was useless, wasn't he? And you know, uh, 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 and then before him, Gordon Brown, what a disaster! And then there was uh, Blair, lying Blair, took, you know, Iraq and uh, and deceit and uh, and money. And then there was Major, uh, Major, well, he was completely useless, wasn't he? And then there was Thatcher, well, she she went mad at the end. And um, that's so it goes and, on. It's and, the and same then, you know, view and, of you know, everyone. And Callahan, well, he was useless. You know, crisis, what crisis? And the IMF crisis. And Wilson was, you know, and you know, so it, it, it's extraordinarily hard to get out. I mean, again, it would have been very interesting, as I spoke about with David Cameron. You know, had he not, had he won the referendum, and had he stayed on another couple of years, which is probably what he would have done, uh, he then would have been extraordinarily the prime minister who had left at the moment of his own choosing that nobody does. 
Yeah. And nobody leaves at the moment of their own choosing. People say that Wilson did in 76, but Wilson was already, you know, absolutely... Uh, it was going very wrong for him. Um, he got Alzheimer's. He was drinking too much. Yes, he said he was going to do two years, but you know he was very ineffective um, and was being pushed. Uh, so I think that uh, it's very you know I mean most of these people are pushed out, but but Cameron would have gone into members in choosing. He would have won uh, two general elections to, or not lost them in 2000 emerged as prime minister after two general elections in 10 and 15 he'd have won three referendums he'd have seen the party through a coalition and uh, and as a conservative leader he'd have got the party to some position of accord on Europe strengthen the economy would have been extraordinary I mean and would have been the leader of the free world after Obama and assuming Merkel goes and and could have done extraordinary and, and had all these plans so you know it was the stakes for that man were really pretty high so uh, I think that Theresa May if she is able to get a sensible way forward on Brexit that's very different from doing what the screaming newspapers are demanding that she wailing like banshees and, and her own demented uh, um, right wing uh, right wingers uh, are you know she'd do very well simply to totally ignore and not everybody in the in <laughs> as a screaming banshee and not everybody in the social party is either but uh, you know significant numbers they're the noisiest are, are. Yeah, yeah do you think she has a sort of maybe advantage is the wrong word but the, the nature of the way she took office yeah. having not really promised anything yeah. she didn't arrive with a great Prime Ministers will win elections and promise the earth and then yeah. sort of dis- disappointment can only follow. Actually, her quite calm, sort of steadied, unshowy, actually didn't re- because there was no leadership contest, she didn't really promise anything. Mm-hmm. She's promised competence, she's promised Brexit means Brexit, but what does that mean? Mm-hmm. That actually means that the, the chance of, of a, ba- a public backlash against, well, you've, you know, you've not done what you said you're going to do, that actually... Well, you say that, although some would say that her speech on Monday with the shared society building on her party conference speech, building on her initial comments, are nevertheless painting a picture of a more interventionist state, mm. of a more Joe Chamberlainite um, uh, one nation state uh, than some of her predecessors. So, yes, you, she has in some ways promised less because she didn't need to, because the fact of elections is you need to promise the earth and, 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 and then you d- d- deliver you know, li- little pots of sand. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, yeah. this is true the world over. It's the way the system works, and we just we merely forget about it from election to election. And we believe that you know, we're going to, yes, we can, you know, um, uh, and uh, we can't. You know, the truth is that they can't. And because she, she didn't have to make these big promises, you know, yep, uh, absolute truth in that. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out over the uh, coming months. And we've had this sort of period of six months of no running commentary, getting to grips with the job, not chasing headlines. But it feels like, particularly when Article 50 is triggered and then we start seeing what's happening in other European countries, the lid might start coming off some of the, the yeah. pressures and seeing how she copes with those. Well, I think the the risk is that you get bounced into it. Eventually, you get so irritated by people saying, you know, for goodness sake, what do you think about X, Y, Z? Uh, so then they start delivering their views on X, Y, Z. Um, and 
then people applaud for, for a couple of days and they say that doesn't make sense. Um, so uh, she, the best advice would be simply just to absolutely ignore. Um, you know, maybe she could say at some point, you know, the expectations of my job are, are simply impossible. We need to reboot uh, the public understanding about what the job of the Prime Minister is because, uh, it, you know, as the record of my six predecessors show, uh, that it is, it is so out of touch with reality about what I could do, but what I will try and do is to do this, this, and this, and if I can do that, you know. Um, and uh, so there needs to be this kind of re-education. Meanwhile, there's going to be huge frustration from the political classes. Um, and But I think, Matt, that it, it, just final point, final point on this is that, you know, people are now beginning to say, well, you know, could it have been Andrew Benson or whatever? No bloody way. <laughs> no, there is no way that anybody who, you know, we talked about the fact that nothing prepares you for the Prime Minister uh, job. Nothing but nothing but nothing. And you never know till you're there on your own and you've got the nuclear codes and you've got the crisis hitting you left, right, centre and people screaming in your ears for decisions and you're very tired and you didn't sleep well last night. And the buck stops with you. Uh, the stops with you. You uh, you never know how you're going to be able to cope, and it's pretty frightening, intensely frightening, actually, for many of them. Nevertheless, she was Home Secretary. She dealt with security and terrorism for six years. There's no way that any of the other people. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's the incredible insouciance, the incredible arrogance from so many people that think they could do these jobs when they haven't a bloody clue what the job involves. So she did at least have that experience. Well, on that final thought, Anthony Soda, thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, please uh, do post a review on iTunes. And remember to sign up to my morning definitely. email briefing. Yeah, um, definitely sign up for the briefing. Essential. Uh, the How Times. Can you think about not signing up. For that's the best, po the best advert we've ever had. The <laughs> Times.co.uk forward slash redbox email. But for now, from Sir Anthony Soda and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.